Content warning. Check the show notes for further information. So, let me tell you a story. Um, in July 2021, my wife and I, and this is a true story, by the way. So, yeah, in July 2021, my wife, Lizzie, and I booked a trip to a bed and breakfast in Hunstanton in Norfolk. That's the English southeast coast, for those who don't know. It was my wife's birthday, and we wanted to, no, needed to get away from home. We really needed it. And there were multiple reasons for that. One is that a couple of weeks earlier, our cat had died. He'd been ill for some time and had been on medication, but watching his decline had been absolutely heartbreaking because you know we relied on him so much over the uh, the COVID lockdown. Um, he died in my wife's arms at the vets, and then after he died, uh, my wife and I we couldn't bear to go downstairs in our own house. We actually lived in our bedroom for a little while. Like, we worked in there, ate in there. That was the one room the cat wasn't allowed in. Anywhere else in the house, we'd just instinctively look for him. And then our hearts would break all over again. So instead, we lived in one room, knowing that eventually the worst of the grief would pass. But it hadn't passed yet. Lizzie didn't know what she wanted for her birthday, but she knew that she didn't want to be trapped in the house because that was just going to be too sad. So that was what we planned this trip to the coast. Um, just before our trip, I went to a fertility clinic to take a test. The results of which pretty much conclusively explained why we'd failed to conceive naturally in the last four years. The doctor told me that if we wanted to have a baby, then we should probably begin IVF treatment as soon as possible because based on our ages, our chances of IVF success would rapidly diminish if we didn't commit to treatment pretty much immediately. Around the same time as my test, Lizzie had to go into hospital for a test of her own. She had uh, an ultrasound appointment about a nodule she'd found on her neck. The doctor said that the results of the scan looked suspicious and that it might be thyroid cancer. They did a biopsy, but the biopsy was inconclusive. And so the doctor recommended Lizzie sign up for a thyroid appendectomy. So but they could know for certain. Lizzie tried to get an idea about the kind of odds we were dealing with here. You know, what exactly was the likelihood that we were dealing with cancer? But the doctor refused to speculate. If we delayed, she said, it would be at our own risk. So that's uh, two hidden secrets that had been hiding inside us, waiting for us to find them. It didn't seem as if we could tackle 
both problems at the same time. There were too many unknowns to find a way to make these two puzzles tessellate. So that left us with a decision to make. Either we begin IVF treatment and hope that we succeed and have a baby before the cancer spreads too far, if it's cancer, or we try to address the nodule on my wife's thyroid first and hope that we can somehow get to the top of the NHS waiting list for thyroid appendectomies before we became so old that our chances of having a successful IVF baby dropped to nil. Which is a big ask considering A, how old we were already, and also B, the length of the average NHS waiting list. Sadly, there was no way to have the thyroid procedure if we were already in the middle of a round of IVF. So hopefully you can see the conundrum here. Either fight the cancer or fight for a baby. Both fights would potentially take years uh, with no guaranteed success on either side. And yet there was no way to start the fight for one without freezing all progress on the other. Anyway, so we went on a holiday. Just for a long weekend, at least. It was supposed to be a long weekend. The building we were staying in was this late Georgian townhouse right next to the sea. Exposed floorboards dusty Victorian knickknacks arranged along the shelves. Once we dumped our things, we walked along the beach together at sunset, watching young families calling to each other across the dunes and felt a darkness swallow us up like nothing I've ever felt in my life. But the vanishing point of the ocean is a powerful thing to fixate upon. All the world's unknowns wait just over the horizon. It's a reminder of the limits of perception. This vast symbolic border between the knowable and unknowable. And we tried our best to remember this. To try and live in this moment and not beyond it. A beach at sunset, the smell of sun lotion, the cries of children. John Keats spoke about this thing called negative capability. It was this specific quality of humanity that he admired. The ability to accept the unknown, to give oneself over to the limits of one's knowledge. You walk up to the edge of the world and you say... This is all I know. What happens beyond this point is beyond fact and reason. After all, who would be naive enough to believe that they already had all the answers to all the questions? What kind of person refuses to accept the limits of knowledge? Religious zealots, insufferable bigots, raving egomaniacs, dickheads, basically, that's who. No. No one knows for certain what's waiting over that horizon. 
To live in the real world, you have to remain comfortable with half knowledge. You have to learn to live in the grey. I mean, to be fair, at that particular moment in time, my wife and I didn't... Well, we didn't feel like we had much choice. <laughs> we had to live in the grey. Because we couldn't get one fucking straight yes or no answer out of a doctor about any of this shit. Still, we knew if we were going to survive this, we, we had to let go of the future. We had to admit that neither of us knew for certain what was actually going on inside our bodies right now. We had to take our lives one day at a time, one decision at a time. We had to learn to embrace the unknown, not fear it. I mean, yeah, that's uh, easier said than done, I know. And hey, look, I know this is a depressing way to start an episode, but I just need you to trust me. This like terrible moment in the history of my family is something that has passed now. And you knowing that upfront is, I hope, going to make this story slightly easier to digest. These memories have crossed over the invisible boundary between now and then. I think it's safe now for these events to become a story. In fact, to be completely honest, I think these events have to become a story, particularly if I ever want to learn anything from it. By the way, welcome back to Imaginary Advice. My name is Ross Sutherland. This podcast is funded exclusively through listener support. Find the link to my Patreon in the show notes of the episode. Anyway, leaving the beach. Um, my wife and I had a drink and a meal at a nearby pub. Then we returned to our room early to rest. There were so many things that we were trying not to think about. And all that not thinking had left us absolutely exhausted. So we went to bed early. I had downloaded a film for us to watch. The film Escape from Pretoria. What we'd always accepted, we would now reject. Starring Daniel Radcliffe. We didn't want a life built on lies and indifference. We wanted to join the ongoing struggle for a democratic and free South Africa. The film, Escape from Pretoria, is the story of real-life South African anti-apartheid activist Tim Jenkin, played by Daniel Radcliffe. I bury my nerves as deep as I possibly could. It's basically a dramatisation of Jenkins' real-life escape from Pretoria Prison in Tishwane, which he achieved by whittling his own set of wooden keys. But what stays in must come out. And, um... You know, I've got to say, D-Rad? Good. I was worried about the accent, but I, know, I thought he did good. So the entire prison became our hiding ground. So anyway, we're watching this film in bed. By the time Radcliffe's on day 100, sneaking around the prison at night with his big sweaty beard, wooden key in his trembling hand, we're both pretty hooked. We're invested, you know. We are successfully not thinking about the future. Although my wife has been suffering from a pretty brutal headache ever since Daniel Radcliffe first entered prison. Let's just call that foreshadowing, okay? Anyway, we get to 
a bit and I can't remember the context of the scene exactly, but basically you see Daniel Radcliffe taking a shit. The closed caption even says plop in square brackets. Maybe he had to eat one of his wooden keys to stop the guards from rumbling the plan and then shit it out again later. It, I, I think it was something like that. Anyway, just after the plop, my wife says that her headache has got so bad that she can't watch anymore. She needs to sleep. We stop the film and before trying to sleep, maybe inspired by Daniel Radcliffe's own stoic toilet use, I decide to go to the ensuite to relieve myself also. The bathroom, I discover, reeks of gas. Not toilet gas, uh, natural gas. Coming, I think, from this extremely janky-looking boiler on the wall. There had been a really strong air freshener in the room when we arrived, but my wife had turned it off before we went to the beach. And now I can smell exactly what the air freshener had been masking. Yet another invisible secret, another hidden threat that had been right there all along, just waiting for us to find it. So suddenly my wife's headache starts to take on a more worrying hue. True enough, the gas had also been spreading into our bedroom. We just hadn't noticed because, well, A, because we've been so gripped by this tense Daniel Radcliffe prison break movie, and B, I think the gas levels had been growing so gradually in the bedroom that it, it never overwhelmed our senses. It had just been slowly building over the last few hours, seeping through the cracks in the bathroom door. A thin stream of invisible hydrocarbons pissing through the bathroom keyhole. My wife and I, clueless to what was happening to us. As clueless as the guards of Pretoria Prison when Daniel Radcliffe first started whittling his way to freedom. First, the gas had broken into our bathroom. Then it had broken into our bedroom. And now... It was pushing its way into our bodies, through our mouths, into our lungs, into our blood. And when one door closed, another one opened. I couldn't turn off the gas myself. Parts of the house were locked off to guests. There was no phone in the house or mobile reception or Wi-Fi. Communications-wise, we were completely cut off. I couldn't call the gas board or the owner of the B&B, but obviously we, we couldn't stay there in that room. We had to leave. So we got redressed, repacked, got back in the car and just started to drive. Once we'd been driving for a little bit, I finally got a bar of reception on my phone. So we pulled up. I left a message for the owner, another for the gas board explaining what had happened. I then spent about half an hour calling every hotel in the area, trying to find us another room for the night, but every place was fully booked, apparently. We just wanted to come away 
for one night. One night away from our cat-haunted house. But now we were stranded, stuck on the road with nowhere to go except begin the drive back home to Peterborough once more. So that's what we did. Or at least that's what we tried to do. About 30 minutes into our journey home, we discovered that the main road back to Peterborough, the A47, was now closed because of roadworks. And what's more, there was no diversion signs at all. Whatever route we tried to take, we just hit closed road after closed road, then found ourselves being turned around and sent back to the coast again. The only solution seemed to be to leave the main roads behind completely. Soon we were driving along pitch black, single lane country roads, weaving through dirt paths and fucking unlisted medieval thoroughfares, trying to find a way, any way, out of Norfolk. Lizzie was behind the wheel, I was on my phone, frantically scrolling Google Maps, trying to find a path. Both of our heads are now pounding from inhaling all that gas. No, ignore that. Don't listen to her, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Meanwhile, my phone keeps trying to send us back to the closed road again. Turn around. No. No. Turn around when shut up, shut up! A rabbit jumps out in front of the car. Lizzie slams on the brakes. The rabbit hops back into the field. The rabbit's fine. As for us, we are not fine. That last jump scare has taken whatever was left of our nerves and shredded them to dust. Even before we went on holiday, we were completely exhausted and every single thing that's happened since has sucked more and more life out of us. We've been poisoned, ejected from our beds, back into the night, stranded in the wilderness, and now animals are hurling themselves in front of our car. And we are so tired. Tired right through to our bones. We just can't go on. Sat there in the dark, looking down that road, I felt the bottom drop out of my world. I don't think I've ever felt anything quite like it before. I was just trying to make sense of what was happening to us. Not just the events of the last few hours, but the the couple of weeks leading up to our trip. The problem is, the more I tried to rationalise our situation, the more I found myself questioning the fundamental reality of the world around us. Even though I knew it was ridiculous, for whatever reason, I could not rule out the theory that just maybe... Just maybe, I was already dead. And that this world I'd slipped into was actually some kind of extended death dream. A kind of like fake reality that was slowly collapsing in on me. That was genuinely what I thought might be happening to me. Well, it was either that or um, theory two. The world was really a simulation and... The the year was really something like 3009. 
and we were like two manufactured consciousnesses living inside a kind of Matrix slash Truman Show-esque reality show. And for whatever reason, we'd just been voted off the network. You know, and that was why all this terrible stuff kept happening because essentially we were being written off the show. I am completely serious. I don't know if that was the gas poisoning or, or the tiredness or the stress, but these, these are genuinely the thoughts that are going through my mind. I thought we had been marked for death and that one way or another, we would not survive the night. And even though we eventually pulled ourselves together and after hours of wrong turns, we finally made it back home around 4 a.m. When I finally opened the front door to our house, some part of me still half expected a pack of wild dogs to be waiting in our front room to tear us to pieces. And even when we went upstairs to bed, even though I was exhausted, I could not sleep. I still couldn't shake the feeling that the story of the night was not over. And that, in fact, it could not be over until something very bad happened to us. Even if it turned out to be a kind of Final Destination style, slipping on a bar of soap and then headbutting my toothbrush through my eye socket kind of thing. It could come from anywhere, anything, anyone. I didn't want to even turn on a light switch. <laughs> I had completely cracked. <laughs> anyway, the following day, I was starting to come down slowly starting to feel a little bit more sane again. That is, until I got an email response from the owner of the B&B, where he told me, categorically, no, there had been no gas leak at the property, and that I was just claiming that there was a gas leak because I was a cheapskate trying to get out of paying for the room. He said he knew we were lying about leaving in the middle of the night, because he lived next door and he had seen us leaving in the morning around seven. He also said that I probably had COVID, which was why I had hallucinated the smell of natural gas. Now I know this response is confusing because on one side he's saying that the gas was a hallucination of mine, but then he's also saying that I had the hallucination deliberately as a ploy to get out of paying for the room. So yeah, I, I know it's a little confusing, but the, the part of the message that really had my attention was the end where he said that his new guests for today had just arrived and unpacked and quote, they hadn't complained about any gas at all, end quote. So I read that and uh, my first thought was obviously, fuck you. But then I started to get worried for these new guests because I thought if they sleep in that room tonight, they could become seriously ill. Carbon monoxide poisoning is no joke, particularly if one of them is elderly or a child or pregnant. Like, and now we're in a situation where it seems like we're the only people who can help them, but no one is listening to us. Why is nobody listening to us? I, I didn't understand how the owner could completely disregard my warning when people's lives are on the also what's this fucking bullshit about covid causing people to hallucinate the smell of natural gas that's not a thing 
in a year of news coverage of COVID-19. Nobody has ever said that. Ever. Ever. Unless... Well, I went online anyway to check and... Well... Would you believe it? It turns out that in many early cases of the COVID-19 coronavirus, people reported something called parosmia, which is a distortion of smell detection in the brain. It can make the sufferer think they're smelling something rotting or burnt. Some people describe it as a chemical smell. So, yeah. I mean, we'd never heard of it before. No one told us that something like that was possible. But actually, it was possible. Extremely possible, in fact. Lizzie was resolute. Her belief in the gas leak did not waver. But I... I could already feel the truth bubbling up inside me. The owner was right that now. There was never any gas leak. It was us. It was always us. We had imagined the whole thing. We were the sick ones. Some combination of mild COVID and the pressure of the problems we've been facing at home. After all, our lives had just been turned completely upside down. Everything that we thought we knew for granted had just been called into question. Wasn't gas just one more metaphor? Something we conjured up in the night as a symbol for all the horror that had suddenly flooded into our lives. Now it just all seemed so obvious to me. We travelled all the way home. All the way through the night for nothing. All that pain and stress for nothing. I think this was even worse than actually being gassed, because now we were the poison. Us. It it lived in our brains. So many bad things had come into our lives that we were no longer capable of distinguishing between what was real and what was nightmare. We were completely adrift. And, you know, what was to stop this from happening again? Hang on. And um, then I got a call from the gas man confirming that, yeah, there had been a gas leak after all. The gas man said that he just left the property now and he discovered a faulty boiler in the bathroom and had immediately shut off the gas supply to the whole house. The current guests had been yet to notice the smell themselves, he added. Perhaps because of a strong air freshener in the bedroom. They were a bit miffed about being left in a house with no hot water, but otherwise relieved. So, um, yeah. I guess in some ways we were vindicated. Never got an apology from the owner, though. Funny that. In fact, I I have a suspicion that 
despite the visit from the gas board, the owner still doesn't really believe there was ever a gas leak. I mean, it is possible, but the reason he couldn't smell the gas is because he had COVID, because COVID can also block sense of smell entirely, right? But who knows? For whatever reason, he seemingly remains unconvinced. He has his version of reality. And as far as he's concerned, anyone who disagrees with that reality is either delusional or trying to con him out of money. From my perspective, what's shocking is just how easily he managed to convince me. Seconds after reading the message he sent me, I accepted his interpretation of reality, despite my own first-hand experience. Am I that easily influenced? I don't think I used to be. But maybe, maybe these days I'm a little more susceptible. Perhaps this is what happens when you spend too long talking about the ocean. The ocean was a metaphor for our coping strategy. Letting go of all the things that you can't see waiting over the horizon. It was necessary as a strategy. I, I, don't, I don't think we had a choice. Circumstances forced us to temporarily turn off the part of our brain that demanded answers. We tried to cut ourselves loose from the timeline of our lives. This is what people do when the world becomes too much. You block out the past and the future. You have to make peace with the unknown. You walk into the fog. No knowledge of what's beyond it. And that can feel like sanctuary at times. The only place left that you feel safe in the world. But out in the fog, with no landmarks to guide you, it's, it's extremely easy for people to fuck with you. <laughs> if somebody manages to get in your head, it, it's a lot harder to prove their version of reality is wrong. You can easily lose faith in your own senses. You can lose track of what's real altogether. Forget who you are, who you were. You uh, start to become fog yourself. Anyway, that was what we did for my wife's birthday. <laughs> that was what we did to get away from all our troubles. In the end, Lizzie decided not to sign herself up immediately for the thyroid appendectomy, but she did have another ultrasound. And this time, the doctor's response was completely the opposite of the last doctor. The new doctor said that based on the nodule's lack of growth, it was extremely unlikely to be an aggressive or dangerous kind of thyroid cancer. So as long as it was regularly monitored, we needn't rush into invasive treatment. What nobody had told us last time is that thyroid nodules are extremely common, particularly in women, apparently. Most go completely undiagnosed and are benign. My wife's diagnosis remains 
inconclusive because they still can't get a good sample. So it remains somewhere caught in the grey. Something that is both there and also not there. But that's kind of always the way with hallucinations, isn't it? They occupy both positions at the same time. They're both real and not real. Half in a dream, half out. Still, this new diagnosis gave Lizzie and me the confidence to make a decision. We decided to seek out IVF treatment and were lucky enough to get two free rounds of IVF on the NHS, which was good because free was pretty much all we could afford. That year of IVF certainly came with its own difficulties, but still one thing that kept us positive during IVF, one thing that helped us soldier through all those periods of uncertainty was this story. The story of the night we got gas poisoned, then found ourselves lost on a dirt road in darkest Norfolk. It kind of became a parable for us, a kind of morale booster for just how much bullshit we could endure where necessary. Not that I feel like I handled the situation that night well. <laughs> At all. At one point, I genuinely thought I was dead. I had so little faith in my own senses, I let someone convince me a gas leak was a product of my paranoid imagination. Like, that's not great, is it? By any stretch of the imagination, that's not... That's not someone excelling under pressure. I guess the point is, though, that despite these little moments of reality distortion, the uncertainties we faced ultimately collapsed. And we returned to a version of the world that we felt like we could trust. Still, um, I promised myself that whatever trials we were going to face over the next few years through the IVF and whatever lay beyond, whatever the future had in store for us. I would not question myself like that again. If I ever found myself back at a crossroads between two competing versions of reality, I would trust my senses, I would trust my instincts, and that would keep me on the right side of sanity. At least that. <laughs> that was the plan. That was certainly what I intended to do, even if that isn't what actually happened. Okay, so for the, the back half of this episode, I'm going to tell you a second true story, something else that happened to me during the hiatus period of this podcast. And it's kind of a complimentary story to the first. It's also loosely on the theme of hallucinations. It's about another time that I uh, temporarily lost hold of what was real and what was in my imagination. And uh, this second story takes place just before my wife went into hospital. 
to give birth to our baby. We'd been lucky with our second round of IVF. And although the pregnancy had been largely uneventful, our stress levels had remained pretty high throughout. I doubt that's particularly unusual. Maybe the stresses of the IVF procedure beforehand had kind of already put us on high alert. Going through IVF is is, is a bit like um, being an acrobat on a high wire. There are just so many things that can go wrong along the way, and some of those things happened to us. So even after a successful embryo implantation, we didn't necessarily trust the journey to run its course. We still were in this place where we couldn't let ourselves think about the future. It was safer to just concentrate on the present moment and only that. But even so, it's hard to maintain a calm, positive mindset when so much of the literature around pregnancy is basically a big, scary list of all the things you're not supposed to do. Don't eat Mr. Whippy ice cream. Don't eat deli meat. Stay away from wet paint. Don't wear tight shoes. Don't sit for too long. Don't stand for too long. Don't watch scary movies. Don't read the Beano. Don't stare too long at hamsters. I might be I might be getting some of those mixed up. Point is the world of antenatal care is a maze of bizarre and contradictory information, perceived threats around every corner. Usually when you enter the final straight of pregnancy, things get a little easier because that's when you get opportunity to talk with healthcare professionals and hopefully put some fears to rest. But in our part of the country, there was, I think still is, a midwife shortage. Plus, there's sort of rolling further problems due to general underfunding uh, of uh, our nearest hospital. So often it was difficult to get information that might have eased our conscience. In fact, every single time that we tried to get a question answered, that question would spectacularly rebound into three new problems we didn't previously know about. For example, when my wife passed her due date, we knew that the next step was supposed to be induction. For various reasons, we wanted to potentially push back the induction date a couple of days, but we couldn't get anyone to talk to us about it. The hospital said that our midwife was supposed to discuss it with us. Our midwife said the hospital was responsible. Lines of communication were so bad that eventually some random doctor was dragged down to the front desk to tell us that he didn't deal directly with patients and this wasn't his department. Okay, cool. Thanks, mate. Thanks uh, for clearing that up for us. Shortly after, the nurse returned to tell us that she just checked our file and apparently, due to us going through IVF, the pregnancy should have been flagged as high risk, which meant that the baby was supposed to have been under close monitoring for the entire pregnancy and that an inquiry would now take place as to why we'd fallen through the net. Oh, we said and left without anyone answering the fucking question we came for. Soon after, um, we got a letter from the hospital telling us that for the foreseeable future, the hospital was banning the option of gas and air from all maternity suites. Apparently, 
the hospital had just done a spot test to check the amount of Entonox in the general air supply of a department. Entonox is the name of the pain relief gas. They tested the amount of Entonox that people were just sucking in as they walked around the ward, and apparently it buried the needle. So much gas was leaking out into the air that apparently everyone working in the maternity ward was basically off their face on pain meds. So, yeah, on top of being chronically short-staffed, the working conditions at this hospital were horribly unsafe, which, of course, is the result of decades of underfunding of the NHS. So, fuck this government and every previous British government who, rather than address the huge funding hole in British healthcare, just waddled up to the edge of that hole and did a big shit in it. Hey, do you want to know what Entonox is? Entonox is basically 50% oxygen, 50% nitrous oxide, aka laughing gas, aka noz, aka hippie crack, kids huff it in balloons and music festivals. Essentially, it restricts the supply of oxygen to the brain and makes you feel dizzy. My experience is that it makes you feel as if time is slowing down slightly. Everything extends as if the universe was being stretched like a piece of rubber. So yeah, not a great fit for a hospital. Not a great fit. Good for the blissed out vibes of listening to psychedelic trance in a woodland glade. Not so great for the surgeon about to perform your C-section. Obviously, you know, the nursing staff hadn't been smearing themselves with day-glow paint and giving each other head massages in the tea room. No one had set up a smoke machine and a strobe light. Matron wasn't chilling on a beanbag with a tub of Vicks vapor rub, saying, oh, guys, we should all live together. Shall I stop there? I'll, I'll stop there. Anyway, the hospital told us there would be no gas and air. As far as we understood it, uh, the main pain relief available was going to be paracetamol. Naturally, on receiving this news, um, we, we kind of lost our fucking minds. Our whole philosophy of staying in the present moment, trying not to visualise the future, that shit really started to crumble at this point. A B&B you can't sleep in, that's one thing, but a hospital that can't provide pain relief, are you serious? It's also weird that once again, the thing that's messing with our safety was leaking gas. It's a second gas leak. Isn't that weird? Anyway, we tried to take the news in our stride. We tried not to let our imaginations run away with us. But honestly, we were very scared. We felt completely helpless. We still didn't know anything about the fucking induction process. How hard is it to... Anyway, regardless of what information we had or didn't have, eventually the day rolled around for my wife to go into hospital. That morning, before setting off for the hospital, 
I briefly left my wife at home, angrily doing a jigsaw, and I walked to the local supermarket to get some final supplies for our hospital stay. On my way back, I went through the underpass, right on the corner of my street, and a random man turned and threw a punch at my head. He was wearing a kind of full face mask, like a a single piece of black fabric covering his entire head. I passed the same guy on my way out to the shops as well as on my way back. And like both times, he was standing very still by the side of the road, just looking at a bush. And yeah, as I walked past him that second time, he turned and swung for my head. I don't think it was a prelude to a mugging because it was broad daylight and there were lots of other people around. It was like an old man walking just 10 paces behind me, which is why I I think it was more likely to be the behavior of someone who wasn't very well. Thankfully, as he turned, I saw his shadow on the ground coming quickly towards me and completely on instinct, I ducked. I think I ducked, I might have cowered, but either way, his fist flew right over the top of my head. He certainly threw his whole weight behind it because the momentum of the swing sends him tumbling over. He actually ends up on his ass in the verge next to me. So anyway, that happens. I look down at him with his weird faceless visage and I say to him, what you might expect, I shout, what the fuck? He climbs back to his feet and then, I swear this is all true. He gets back to his feet and then he does this creepy come hither gesture at me with his finger you know the one and as he's doing it he backs away from me down a narrow pedestrian path towards the river what the fuck is that about (laughs) listener you will be relieved to know that I did not come hither. I chose to back up in the other direction and call the police. In retrospect, not sure calling the cops was the right move. Technically, the guy assaulted me in the street, but I mean, I'm assuming it's a guy. Like I said, the face was completely covered. It's just like a balaclava without any holes. It was, and I know I've already said this, so weird. This kind of thing, it it belongs to a special subcategory of event. The kind that can't be explained with logic. You you try to hold it in your mind, inspect it from different angles, but however you grab it, it just escapes through your fingers that there's something fundamentally blurry about it. 
This is why I've come to assume that my attacker was um, mentally digressant. He was responding to a version of reality that I don't have access to and probably never will. I don't know why I called the police. It, it, it wasn't because I wanted to press charges, but I was worried that he might take a swing at someone else. I wasn't sure if calling the police was just going to make things worse. But I shouldn't have worried because the police did fuck all anyway. But like we didn't find the guy or work out who he was, track him down, check he was okay. As far as I can work out, they just wrote down what happened in that really big crime book of theirs. You know, the crime book. Wrote it down for safekeeping. More archivists than anything else, aren't they? The British police. They're like collecting up all the crimes. You know, eventually... I hear that um, they're going to take that big crime book of theirs and uh, bury it in a time capsule in uh, the garden of the police station by the rhododendron bushes, you know, along with a copy of the Radio Times and a Furby with the, uh, the hope that future generations of police officer can then one day uh, dig up the capsule and say, oh, a lot of crime back then. But that wasn't very nice. After I get off the phone to the police, I walk the rest of the way home. I've got some crisps and some mini rolls for our overnight hospital bag. Plus, a whole new thing to be scared of for the rest of my life, so that's fun. I'm probably making too much of this. Ultimately, nothing happened, right? Nothing happened, and I'm extremely grateful for that. Still, at the time, I did feel pretty shook by the whole thing. It just felt as if, it felt as if the universe had taken all my fears about the hospital and the impending birth and then compressed those fears down into human form, a faceless human form, and then sent that man to come find me and do a little piece of surprise, highly symbolic street theatre at me. Sadly, there wasn't really any time to process what had just happened to me because shortly after I got back home, our taxi arrived, ready to take me and my wife to the hospital to initiate the birth of our son with, if we were lucky, the help of a couple of paracetamol. No time for reflection. (laughs) I just had to move past it get in the car and go. I know how I felt. I can only imagine how much worse my wife felt. We planned to do all this fucking hypnobirthing stuff. We had all these meditative exercises planned, systems to help keep us calm, to help us stay present. But uh, there wasn't a page on the hypnobirthing website for what to do when your hospital is flooded with nitrous oxide or how to cope with being randomly assaulted on your way to the hospital. Our heads were just all over the place. We couldn't picture the kind of situation at the hospital we were walking into. And I'm not blaming the hospital, but still, every interaction we had with that place eroded our faith in them to look after us. And now paranoia was taking over. 
Still, I think my wife's paranoid fantasies were pretty grounded, i.e. What if there aren't enough staff? What if I can't get an epidural? What if I'm in pain and no one will listen to me? Meanwhile, my paranoid fantasies were completely deranged. Something about being attacked by a faceless man in an underpass had made me lose faith in the most basic rules of reality. I felt as if when I got to the hospital, I could open the door to the men's room and then suddenly fall down an open lift shaft, that kind of thing. I didn't feel as if I could take anything for granted. The director of my life had been fired and now David Lynch was taking over the remainder of the project. God, do you think it was me giving birth by the way I'm making this story all about me? <laughs> Look, I know. I know I'm a bit player in the story of the birth of my son. I know I'm supporting cast, but this isn't really the story of the birth of my son. It's a story about hallucinations. And the story only really works if I tell it from my perspective. Anyway... I knew I was making things worse. I knew I had to pull myself together. By the time the taxi arrived at the hospital, I needed to be calm, rational, supportive, full game face. I needed to be there for my wife and not a gibbering wreck. So I tried to make myself feel better by smugly remembering how awesome it had been that I'd managed to duck that guy's punch. In the moment it mattered, I'd been paying attention, and that meant, intuitively, I'd been able to sense the threat and act upon it. Also, uh, probably looked pretty fucking sweet, ducking a punch like that. Come on, I'm like Steven Seagal in his prime. I'm fucking hard to kill. You know what I'm saying? Like a white Tony jar. Didn't even drop my mini rolls. Everything that happened in the underpass happened on instinct and the same was going to be true in the hospital, I told myself. We couldn't predict what was going to happen but that was okay. We were going to trust our natural instincts. The right choice will be obvious in the moment. We just have to trust ourselves to react. Unless the guy who attacked me in the underpass was actually just a figment of my imagination. Because if that's true, I am seriously fucked. And sadly, the more times I describe it back to myself, did a faceless man try and knock me out in the road and then do come hither fingers at me and back off down the public footpath? The more it really does start to sound like a stress-induced hallucination. Suddenly, sitting in the back of that taxi, I'm feeling like I'm drowning in my own sweat. My wife is about to go through probably the most difficult moment in her life. She needs me to be there for her, to be her advocate, to be her emotional support. What she doesn't need is someone who is floridly hallucinating imaginary assailants. But sadly, ah, uh, for my wife, I am all that is available. Don't worry, I'm 
not about to give you a blow-by-blow account of our birth story. We're going to skip through this chapter very, very quickly. My wife was on a ward for three sleepless nights. It wasn't until the third day that my wife was finally started on the induction drugs, which soon after administering caused the baby's heart rate to plummet. Turns out he was being strangled by his umbilical cord and he'd pooped too, so he was swimming in his poop. The midwife slammed the big red button above the bed. 20 people flew into action and my wife got carted down to an operating theatre for an emergency C-section. My wife was incredibly brave throughout. She was and is an inspiration. Was the whole experience as scary as we thought it was going to be? No, it wasn't as bad as some of the scenes that I had imagined during my disassociative episode in the back of the taxi. The hospital did not transform into a film directed by David Lynch. You know, uh, a slow speaking receptionist did not usher us through a portal into a fire dimension. Our anaesthetist was not Dennis Hopper crouched in the corner whispering riddles. It was just a hospital. They are confusing, frustrating places, but hospitals are conceptually robust places, even when chronically underfunded. Plus, they're full of people that you can grab and say, please help me, and eventually somebody will. Our own story through the hospital was is, is actually surprisingly linear. We had almost no decisions to make, mostly because everything went bad so quickly that all of the decisions ended up being made for us. Along the way, though, um, we crossed paths with a lot of couples having far worse experiences than our own, including several women who had to give birth on just a couple of paracetamol. So, yeah, basically the same way it was done in the Victorian era. To my knowledge, at the time of writing, Peterborough General still hasn't reinstated gas and air. That's uh, nine months since the ban. And, uh, yep, anyways, little snapshot of the state of the UK there. I hate to relegate the incredible life-changing birth of my son to the margins of this story. But basically, for the purposes of today's episode, the main scene I want to draw attention to is that ride in the taxi on the way to hospital. I mean, look, some other time, some other episode, I'll get to write about my son. Maybe once he gets to the age that he can provide copy approval. But uh, yeah, the reason I wanted to include the story today is mostly because of that taxi ride. When, for a brief moment in time, I lost track of what was real and what was happening in my head. You can see why I wanted to pair this story with the first story in this episode. Both stories are kind of the same story, really. In fact, structure-wise, both stories are pretty much identical. There's a health complication, then a gas leak, then an unprovoked attack. The first one was a rabbit. Then a nervous breakdown in a car, leading to me questioning the reality of certain past events. Identical structure both times. I suppose there's no equivalent in this story of Daniel Radcliffe taking a shit. But apart from that, the beats are identical. From a personal therapeutic point of view, like I find that quite interesting. You know, see this strange narrative cycle repeating itself um doesn't necessarily make a good podcast episode though 
in terms of storycraft, it's it's actually it's fucking terrible. I've just told the same story twice, except like the second time it's in slightly different clothes. What is this? Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. So, sorry about that. What could I say? It's my podcast. I, I can't help it. There's no one to rein me in. Still. Some people listening to this might initially find it hard to relate to these experiences. You know, how can someone get themselves into such a state that they don't know what's real and what's in their heads? And yeah, when you put it like that, it seems quite extreme. But I think we all experience that kind of doubt from time to time. Have you ever come back from a holiday and then as soon as you return to work, the entire holiday starts to feel like a dream? Our minds, they plough the same familiar furrows every day and when that routine is suddenly broken it, it can be hard to consolidate that new experience with the world that we've come to expect. Has anything ever happened to you in your life that was so out of the ordinary that afterwards part of your brain just couldn't quite accept it? I think it is common to have experiences like that. It's just, in most cases, we side with our memory. We trust the lived experience. But that kind of trust, the trust required to trust one's own senses, like that trust doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's tied to an individual's overall relationship with trust. The abstract concept of trust, the human quality of trust as as, as a pillar of human consciousness, the more damaged the pillar, the less likely one is to believe what one sees with their own eyes. And I I think that's kind of how I got myself so confused in both stories. That's how I came to question uh, the reality of something that had just happened to me. It was the accumulation of a series of unexpected breakages that led me to believe that possibly my own memory was broken too. For a little while uh, afterwards, I I still had some lingering doubts about what had actually happened to me in that underpass. The thing that eventually clinched it for me was when I remembered what happened to me immediately after the attack. Right after it happened, uh, this old guy who had been walking about 10 paces behind me, he came up put his hand on my shoulder and said, bloody hell, I'm glad that happened to you and not me. Now, as soon as I remembered that guy, that genial but slightly annoying old man, then everything else locked into place. A faceless assailant doing come-hither fingers at me. Yeah, sure, that feels like something that might have escaped from a dream. An old man holding a loaf of bread saying, thank God that weren't me. That is absolutely a very real person from the city of Peterborough. He's real. I would not make up someone like that. So yeah, that gives me some confidence regarding the veracity of the whole story. Like I said earlier, both of these stories are essentially the same story. They're both stories about hallucinations that turned out 
not to be hallucinations at all. First the gas leak, then the attack in the underpass. Both of them turned out to be real. And I'm thankful for both in the end. It's actually better that they happened. And perhaps the fact that I briefly considered them to be fantasies allowed me to explore them more symbolically than I would normally allow moments in my life. They became little dreams for me to analyse, little extensions of my mind that somehow got loose in the world. And because of that, ultimately, they taught me things about myself. So, yeah, I guess I'm grateful in the end. Three days after going into hospital, my wife and I re-emerged, carrying our newborn son. His name's Elliot. Only then, in that moment, did I allow myself for the first time to believe that he could exist. Ever since I first discovered my fertility issues, I had refused to look into the future. I, I couldn't trust it. I couldn't believe in it. Even hearing his heartbeat while he was still in the womb, I could not bear to look forward to any point beyond the exact second of that moment because I, I, was, I was terrified of what would happen to me if that future disappeared. But leaving the hospital, holding him swaddled to my chest, waiting for a taxi to take us home again, I could feel that heartbeat for real, not coming to me through a heart monitor, not through a microphone, not a recording, but the living vibration itself. Since my grip on the world started to slip a little, I'd, uh, I'd been looking for something to put my faith in. Something constant. Something that I could say, well, whatever the fuck is going on here, at least I know that is real. And so, feeling that vibration, without really thinking about it at the time, I put my faith in it. Because uh, if that heart was real, then there was a pretty good chance that I was too. Oh, you know what? I actually quite like that as an ending to the episode. But um, sadly, that last scene there, it isn't just a sentimental coda. It's uh, It's kind of foreshadowing for the third story. Shortly after Elliot was born, I, uh, I, I woke up early one morning and all I could hear was this. Somehow, while I had been asleep, 
that night I had completely lost my hearing in my right ear. And in its place was basically a permanent angry wall of tinnitus running down my right hand side. I went to the doctor. I saw several audiologists. I went back to the hospital, but sadly, no one was able to explain exactly what had happened or why it occurred so quickly. I was put on a waiting list to get a hearing aid, but I had some serious doubts about how I could continue to work as an audio maker, even with a hearing aid. It was becoming increasingly unlikely that I would ever be able to bring back the podcast after my paternity break. So I had to start looking for a new job and fast. Uh, As you no doubt remember, doubling down on trusting my senses had been quite an important tool for getting through some of the slightly dicier moments of the last few years. So yeah, to partially lose one of those senses uh, left me feeling a little vulnerable. And then, sometimes people who experience hearing impairment also experience this thing called deafferentation, which uh, according to this online medical dictionary here, is the freeing of a motor nerve from sensory components by severing the dorsal root central to the dorsal ganglion. Deafferentation is the official name for phantom limb pain, when we can still feel something in a removed appendage. Deafferentation in terms of hearing loss means experiencing auditory hallucinations. And for me, Specifically, that means auditory hallucinations of my baby. More specifically, my baby crying. So, shortly after losing my hearing, I start to hear my baby crying at all hours, day and night. I keep thinking I can hear him crying but it is not him. It is me. (laughs) I put my faith in the realness of my baby. (laughs) Something that you can hold to your chest and believe in. And within months of him being born, my baby begins to multiply. Phantom babies calling me from behind doors in my house and when I open those doors there's nobody there and so after two years mistaking real life for hallucinations I uh, I finally cross the, uh, the Rubicon of the real and come into contact with an actual hallucination many hallucinations babies, babies, babies My house is full of babies. And uh, I'll tell the rest of that story next time on the podcast in part two of this little post-hiatus catch-up. 
Once again, my name is Ross Sutherland. All this time, you have been listening to Imaginary Advice. Yes, we're back. And obviously I hate to spoil the drama for the second part in the story, but it is clear that I don't give up Imaginary Advice because you're listening to it right here. Yeah, so clearly I do restart the podcast, even though I still do only have one working ear, and I will explain more next time. But look, in the meantime, just please be a little forgiving if the sound mix is a little off sometimes, all right? Because I'm on a learning curve here. But yeah, I'll be back next month. Finally, before you go, uh, hey, you may have noticed that this podcast doesn't contain adverts. That's because Imaginary Advice is 100% supported by its listeners. And uh, as you might imagine, it's a precarious time for the show returning after such a long hiatus. So right now, listener support is exceptionally crucial for the continuation of the show. Supporters get a whole second bonus podcast Plus, there's some other higher tier perks as well. So if you'd like to support the podcast, all the information is linked to in the show notes of this episode or go to patreon.com forward slash Ross G Sutherland. Or to make a one-off donation, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash imaginary advice. I'll be back soon. Thanks for listening.